welcome to the Danielle Newnan podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is Jack Butcher, founder of Visualize Value, a media and product business that I like to say takes complex ideas and makes them digestible through visual design. He also sells incredible courses which helps others to learn, teach, build and sell their value more effectively. Originally from the UK, Jack moved to New York to pursue his passion as a designer. Then at the beginning of 2020, with very little money in the bank, his side project called Visualize Value took off. In this interview, we talk about how that happened, how that first year of the pandemic saw everything aligned for his work and for finding his audience. We also discuss his thought process behind Visualize Value's unique visual identity and how much he learned from a tweet storm by founder, investor, philosopher, Naval Ravikant. Jack is completely a founder of our times, someone who found his voice, niche and audience on the internet and how he leveraged all of it to build a multi-million dollar business that earns him money while he sleeps. That famous quote from Naval rings true for all of Jack's work. And that is build once, sell twice. In this interview, Jack shares insights into the importance of one true fan, the distribution channels and techniques which helped his audience grow massively, and how experimentation and transparency are key to his success. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with the creative genius that is Jack Butcher, and I'm sure you will too. The question I always ask my guests at the beginning is, what were you like growing up and what were some experiences which shaped you? What was I like growing up? I, interestingly enough, where my head goes when you ask that question was like, what was I interested in? What captured my attention when I was younger? And I think I wouldn't describe myself as a creative kid, not in the sense of like always wanting to make things artistically, nor like huge interest in sports. I'm not, it's a really interesting question I don't, I don't really have a very clear picture of what interested me from a young age and I think a lot of people do or they at least like retrofit stuff played a lot of computer games in my younger days spent a lot of time outside I grew up in like a reasonably small village in the UK so a lot of riding bikes camping making fires undercooking sausages that kind of stuff yeah I wasn't a particularly great student either like went to school and kind of scraped through my GCSEs and then went to college based on, I think my parents' recommendation at the time, they were just like, you need to learn how to use a computer because computers are the future, which, you know, turned out being, turned out to be great advice. But I studied, I guess it was like computer programming, BTEC thing at like a community college in the UK. And that definitely wasn't my thing. Like I don't consider myself a particularly analytical person. And then just weird like chain of events led me to graphic design. I had a cousin that worked in a design studio. And back then, I don't know if this is still the case in the UK, you had to like go on a week's work experience, I think in when you're in year 10 or nine or something. And all of the options that were presented by the school, I was like, that doesn't sound that interesting. So I asked my mom if she could talk to my cousin and maybe get me a spot at a design studio. And it was just through being exposed to that, that I was like, Oh, it's amazing that people get paid to do this and you can spend your time in front of a computer coming up with ideas five days a week. So I kind of stumbled into a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now. It wasn't like this inherent drive that I had as a kid 
That's so interesting because so many people, like you said about retrofit, sometimes so many people look back and they almost give the answer that makes sense in terms of the path that they've taken now, which I I totally get. It also goes to show that children should be exposed to so much, so many different things, not just what's put forward to them at school, because otherwise, how do they know? You moved to, I think it was New York in 2010. What led you there? Another bizarre story. I'm assuming a lot of the people listening to this podcast are in the UK. I was in a Weatherspoons one night in Swindon, where some friends of friends of mine said that they were going to New York because they knew somebody that worked at Virgin Atlantic. They could get them cheap tickets and they had one more spot. And at the time I was doing an internship in London. So I was commuting back and forth and I never did any like significant traveling when I was a kid. A lot of my friends at school, when they graduated, whether it was between, yeah, between school and university, they go Thailand or Australia. Or a lot of people I knew went on these extended traveling trips and I never did that. So as soon as I was presented with this opportunity, I was like, I should try and figure out a way to jump on that. So I said yes to them. And then a week before I was due to take off, it's like, maybe I should reach out to some people in New York to at least get like a sense of what the design scene is like there. There's obviously a lot of talented people in New York, a lot of amazing businesses in the design world operating out of New York. So weirdly, I think I Googled graphic design internships or something to that effect. And the first result was Craigslist. Mm-hmm. Not sure how big it is in the UK, but it's like a classified ads thing. And there's like 150 job postings on there. And I just emailed every single one of them with my college portfolio saying, I'm going to be in New York for three months. I'd love to meet you and ask you some questions about your business and the world of graphic design, blah, blah, blah. And I think I got one response and the guy that responded, that's kind of the rest is history type catalyst. I met up with him. We got along really well and he sorted out a visa for me. And yeah, I worked there for a few years and just bounced around a bunch of agency jobs in New York. And now I'm fully fledged family in the States. I'm assuming when you decided to go over there, you were not planning a long-term visit. I really didn't know what to expect. I definitely wasn't planning on it. I was planning on doing my 12 weeks, meeting some people, learning some stuff and then figuring out Well, probably coming back and begging for my old job back was what I thought I would be doing. One question I really want to ask you early on was what life was like for you at the beginning of the pandemic? Because obviously I know quite a bit about your story and I know that from January 2020, fast forward to now, a lot has happened. But I also simultaneously reached out to Sam Parr and I asked him what, because I know he's interviewed you. And for those that don't know, he's an entrepreneur investor. And I asked him what's something I couldn't possibly know about you, but should definitely ask you about. And the things that he stated were that either when you first got to the US or at the beginning of 2020, that you lived in a tiny little apartment, like a studio apartment, and that there's like not much money in the bank. And also that your wife, who's come on this business journey with you, with your visualized value, that she's the backbone of the organization. And so I thought, wow, that's fantastic. Because these kind of sums up all of the early questions that I wanted to ask you. So can mm-hmm. you tell me about those early days in America, maybe even how you met your wife and sure. also what her role is within your current business? So the job I was describing in the last answer was um, my first job in New York, which would have been in 2011. And I bounced around a bunch of different agencies. The guy that started this little boutique agency eventually shut it down about two years in. And I got a referral from another guy that worked at that agency for this job that he now had, which was a much bigger 
digital consultancy, 13,000 global employees type things, completely different environment. And I met Celia, my wife, at that next job. We didn't really work on any projects together, but there was, I think there was this one, we designed a conference room together. It's a long, weird story, but we spent some time together. And then a few years later, ended up getting together. We got married in 2015 and we both kept working, doing our separate things for another about three years, three and a half years. In At the end of 20, I always get my years mixed up, either the end of 2017 or 2018, I started a independent agency. This is while I still had a full-time job. I was just trying to get something spun up on the side for myself. And that wasn't visualized value. The idea for visualized value didn't come until probably 18 months or two years later, but that agency eventually got big enough where we kind of made a decision to go all in on it. And Celia's skill set is basically the complete opposite of mine. Like she's very organized, is excellent at following up and negotiating partnerships and making sure that I do the stuff that I say I'm going to do on the creative side, all of the communication with outside people and yeah, just keeping everything organized, which is obviously crucial to running any sort of business. So we have a very complementary skill set there. And then 2019 was when Visualized Value really started to become a thing, which was just basically a product of iterating at the agency where I didn't want to spin this up into basically a competitor to all the agency businesses that we'd worked at in the past, because we you know, know that business model inside and out. And it's like not a particularly attractive one to me personally, like my temperament and skill set is not really managing dozens and dozens of people and just spreading yourself thin over a lot of different types of businesses and industries. So visualized value is like this outcome of working with a lot of different people and just doing a lot of self-examination of what, like if we had to really narrow this down to something specific that we want to do or that we're uniquely positioned to do in some way, what would it be? And visualized value is, that's a kind of a long story to explain all the nuance in that, but getting to that point was a really iterative process. And we probably had, you know, one business in name sense, but we probably tried five or six different models before landing on visualized value. And then the timing of the pandemic obviously overlapped with us building a entirely digital business where before we were doing a lot of traveling, we'd shoot car commercials and that would have been essentially just sent the business to zero if the timing had been different on visualized value. But we just pivoted away just before all that stuff happened. And obviously being stuck inside for a couple of years had us focused pretty heavily on putting a like completely digital business, which is what it is now. You know what, that timing is incredible, really, because had you not pivoted, like you said, things would have been very different for you. But also the pandemic meant that we all became introspective. We started looking at what we were doing, especially in our jobs, because People were either losing jobs or working from home. And a lot were obviously trying to marry the dynamic of having a partner, having a child, homeschooling, working and all of that. And a lot of people found it very tough, but I saw so many people thrive and a lot were women, a lot were mothers Mm -hmm. who were suddenly able to manage their own time. And even though it was very hard, I saw a lot of women starting businesses, which I thought was fantastic. And the reason I want to ask about your lovely Celia is because I've heard you say on other podcasts and also Sam had mentioned it, but sometimes there's a female involved and they're not really 
part of the front story sometimes mm-hmm. that's often on purpose because they don't want to be but I think obviously there's a lot of credit due to her so hence why I wanted to bring her up but Sam also mentioned the fact you're in a tiny studio and there was not much money in the bank so when you look back and obviously the timing of the pandemic can you believe how far you came when you think about just the 2020 alone it was it like the maddest year you've ever had Oh, it's so bizarre to think about it now. Like it's one of those things, I think we talked about this maybe before we started recording. It's like when you have a a baby at the beginning, you can't believe that you're only sleeping an hour a night or two hours a night. And then you kind of look back and you wish that you could be back in that position, but you also forget about Mm. the intensity of some of the things you're feeling at that time. Mm. And definitely like Sam's point about just taking everything down to the wire was a huge catalyst as well. It's like you just forced to figure something out. Yeah, that year was pretty wild. And most of it is honestly concentrated in the second half of that year too, maybe even the the fourth quarter of that year. We didn't actually build any products, I think, until August of 2020. The rest of the year was like these small consulting clients that were coming from getting the content out and it resonating in a certain way. So the real like catalyst for the scalable business didn't come along until later in that year. But I also think there's this convergence of the thing that you're describing with people looking for ways to get their expertise onto the internet, which was this thing that I had been struggling with for four or five years prior. And that just beautifully aligned with what we built at Visualize Value. And we're able to build a community of a few thousand people that are all kind of pushing in this direction. And yeah, like, as you mentioned, the timing is kind of fascinating. And in hindsight, even the, I think the behavior of people on the other side of the screen, like everybody is at home spending an unhealthy amount of time on the computer, to be honest. And that allowed us to just build amazing relationships with a lot of people that were really impactful in shaping what visualized value is. Whereas now, I think if you're starting something like that now, like getting to that depth when people have the option to go out and enjoy the outside and spend time with all the people that they've been away from for a couple of years. It's, I, I would think this is just an assumption, but I would think that that level of connection is just harder to achieve now that optionality has opened up again. I was talking to someone earlier and I was saying that I was going to interview you and they asked me about you. And the way I said it, which, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I basically said it's literally the art of making complex ideas digestible. That's how I describe what you do. And I talked about the unique prints with the black background and the white font. And it is so unique. And I know there's lots of copycats now. I've been following you from the beginning of the kind of pandemic journey, shall we say. And I see a lot of people copying, but whenever I see it, I know they're copying you. Do you know what I mean? It's such a unique skill set that you've got and such a unique art that you put out. When you decided to put the first more Mm. viral piece out there in terms of making it white on black, what was the thought process? Sure. So one of the businesses that we tried to run before Visualize Value was called Trust Accelerator. And it was basically an agency where we would take podcast, like people who had podcasts, whether they're interviewing people or their monologues, or they had some special podcast format and a managed service where they'd literally send us an hour of audio. And I would build a brand and make visual assets out of the things they said on the podcast. And we had at one point, maybe like 12, 15 clients for this thing. And I built all these different visual identities for all these different podcasts and was taking a statement from a podcast and turning it into a visual. 
And I think there's some like the seeds of visualized value were in there, but they weren't like conceptual illustrations. They're more like stylized posters. And I think the realization I had while I was doing that is like the really difficult bit was establishing the guidelines at the beginning. That's where 80% of the effort went in. And then you have this ability to come back to it and think more about what it is you're trying to say than all of the creative decisions that you're making. There's a Tim Ferriss quote. He says, make one decision to remove a thousand decisions. Some of that I learned in corporate advertising and design in general, where you have brand guidelines and you operate in this color and this typeface, and you don't put this next to that, et cetera, et cetera. So you have these rules that just speed up the creative process. So I think what I was trying to do with Visualize Value initially was make something that's recognizable, but also almost unbranded. This is like the essence of the concept where you don't have these superfluous details that you as a creative can kind of hide behind. You can sit there and like play with textures and choose colors and mess around with typefaces for hours on end. Versus like, here's the tools that you have. This is going to put way more emphasis on you communicating the concept than it is playing around with stylistic little nuances that can take up a bunch of time. So landing on that, I think the initial idea was if I'm going to offer this as a service, I need to present it in a way that feels like it appeals to more people, if that makes sense. So they can kind of see how it would be embellished to take on their brand and like represent more of what they stand for. So that was the idea to just reduce the aesthetic all the way down. And then obviously that just became a forcing function for just being able to return to those rules and pass all these ideas through that filter. And then to your question about the first image, this is when I was really starting to discover Twitter. Before that, I was messing around on Facebook and Instagram and like just putting random creative work onto these, like I had an uh, Instagram page called Opponent. That was the name of uh, the agency. And we were just like, here's a case study of this project. Here's a car commercial we shot. Here's an app we designed. And then I didn't really have empathy at the time for like, who cares about this? Like who's going to follow this other than other agencies that like insider joke type stuff that only appeals to practitioners within that same sphere. So visualized value has really helped me crack that idea where you can appeal to a broader number of people because the ideas are way more applicable, useful, interesting to a person than just a case study of a really specific website you built or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the first one I really remember, I did a quote by Nassim Taleb and uh, Twitter really helped me understand the difference between closed networks and open networks. So on Facebook, obviously you're connected to a few hundred people that you've met throughout your life. You know, maybe people you went to school with, went to college with, worked with, etc. Same for LinkedIn kind of, and especially back then, like this was before algorithms were trying to juice content to reach every corner of the earth. And Twitter, I realized, oh, if I tag this person, the likelihood that they're going to see it is pretty high. I guess it's an ego thing on Twitter where people are more likely to wake up and check their Twitter feed and look at their notifications than someone who has like a fan page on Facebook or whatever. So that insight, I think at the beginning, unlocked a lot of the early distribution where I would find these people who had articulated ideas that really helped me figure out where I was going and make the business better. And they were really like the symbiotic relationship between the ideas that were that really helped me make breakthroughs and the things that I was visualizing and then being able to put those ideas literally in front of the people who 
came up with them. Then they would amplify them to their networks. Then I would make new connections with people that were following all of these individuals that were talking about the things I was interested in. So it's just like this really interesting mutual network building phenomenon happening. And yeah, I kept doing that for a long time. This was in early 2019 when this started, when I was still doing agency stuff. And this was like a side project and uh, was making like five or six images a day while I was trying to just hoover up knowledge to make the business better at the time. A fantastic lesson that you tried something and it worked. And that's one of the things about you is you seem to try a lot of things and you're also very confident. And the third thing that I was going to say just personally about you that I think I've learned in the last two years, you're very much a creative genius. And one of the questions early on about what we like at school is because I know a lot of creative people who've done very well. And most of them, I would say, didn't feel like genius at school. In fact, they felt the opposite because they lent towards the creative sphere. And I don't think, well, definitely for my generation, I'm older than you, but I felt like the education system and teachers were not looking at the creative kids and thinking they're brilliant. It was more like the focus was on science and maths and French and English, so much so that even if you had a creative inkling, it was less nurtured. And I think parents worried, like parents of my generation weren't encouraging of people that wanted to go into design and things like that. So I think it's really interesting because whenever I see your work, even like one of the things you do is obviously you sell merchandise, but you make it like a limited run or you used to. And I thought, God, that's such a clever idea. And I did always wonder, does he do it on purpose? Like, does he think, well, this is going to create scarcity? And I thought it doesn't matter whether you've tried it and you've learned that way or whether you knew it would work and you did it. It doesn't really matter. Do you feel like you're a genius or do you sometimes question yourself? Well, first of all, thank you very much. An amazing compliment. I don't think so. I, honestly, the idea of trying a lot of things, I think, is not exclusive to the working environments that I came up in. But I think that definitely you can attribute so much of embracing trial and error, I think, to jobs and environments and teams that really encourage that. Like the agency environment is one where you're literally competing against another team of people to get an idea into a presentation. And I think that form of healthy competition definitely was a huge driver for me. I actually lived in a house with eight people. I studied graphic design in Cardiff and I lived with eight guys all in the same program. And that environment, even before I started working, was like this, oh, you kind of comparing notes while you're developing ideas and you're all working on the same brief because you're in the same program at the same time. And that, again, I'm retrofitting this and I'm trying to basically come to the conclusion of why I feel, you know, maybe more comfortable than some people at trying things. And I think I just have so much evidence that that's the only way to make something better that I, um, just stick with it. It's like an instinct, especially when you put yourself in a position where you have to essentially keep trying until it works or, you know, give up and go back to work, which was where we were at the beginning of 2020. And I also think just agency work in particular exposes you to so many different industries, people, challenges. I just love the process of sitting in a room and like trying to distill things, come up with clever ways to say something that like puzzle solving or problem solving becomes a game that you really start to enjoy. And then, yeah, I think being really transparent about that throughout 
building visualized value itself has been very freeing too. Like I've been, or at least I like to think I've been very transparent about the fact that, I mean, it's, it's kind of the best, the best marketing engine for this whole business has been just letting people completely behind the curtain and saying, this is what we're trying to do. This is even to the extent where it's like, this is a technique that people use to market things to you. And here's how we are doing it right now. There's been this like really interesting level of connection that I've been able to have with people based on the fact that I'm not trying to manipulate anybody. I think that idea of trying to be transparent about what you're learning in real time, it's almost like you don't have to overthink it. And every failure you put out is actually making the case for the fact that you're experimenting, which is what you're trying to encourage people to do. So I think mm. the feedback loop just kind of works. Absolutely. With audience building, because obviously you have amassed a huge amount of followers. And I wanted to ask you, I know people have talked about 100 true fans or 1,000 true fans. And I've heard you talk about this one true fan concept. So I wanted to ask you, for creators, there's way more creators, I think, now since the pandemic, but also because the wave that we're on at the moment and the platforms that we have available to us, how would you advise someone to grow their audience? So I will caveat my answer with the classic idiom to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So I think the way I think about it, because I came up in a working environment where I was trying to transition from doing something really specific, you know, time for money, sit in an office, come up with an idea, go and sell the idea. If they buy it, then you work with them for three months to implement the idea. So all of my experience and all of the things that I can give, I think, legitimate perspective on come from that place where it's like you're trying to basically leverage the internet to make your job more fun, pay you more, connect you to people that are more interesting to work with, more fun to work with. And the idea of one true fan, I think, again, retrofitting the big inflection points in the growth of visualized value were these one-on-one -on -one consulting or design client relationships that I had with people where I would sit with people for dozens of hours, hundreds of hours in some cases, and really see how they're brilliant at one thing, but they just don't have the ability to articulate it the way I can. And that was, in most cases, producing these visuals that distill all of this experience and complexity and perspective into something that they feel really confident they can walk into a room with or put on their website or email to somebody and say, this is exactly what we stand for. Experiencing that in person where you can literally see someone's eyes light up as an epiphany, like that's exactly what I was trying to say, or that says it so much clearer than I've been able to say it. That I think you get a ton of confidence from experiencing that in person because all you're then looking for is like just to replicate that phenomenon over and over and over again. And a lot of people, I think, approach it from the other end where they're trying to satisfy a thousand people, 10,000 people, a million people at once. And then the kind of relationships get more diluted or the stuff you make is way less specific. And I recognize that that's a difficult thing to kind of identify too, because I, I almost accidentally stumbled into that. It's just all of these mixed up experiences. And we're in a time now where you're getting hit with this messaging from every angle where it's like, figure out what you're amazing at and just do it. And I never even understood that concept until I was 29, 30. I don't know exactly, but I was sitting without a Twitter account, without a Facebook account in a 
design studio in New York, just grinding out projects for 80 hours a week for years and years and years and years. And then being introduced to these concepts later in my life was just a way to augment the stuff I already knew. So I try to talk about this and I try to articulate this where sometimes the best thing to do is to just put yourself in an environment that you're unfamiliar with and spend time with people and figure out what it is that you can pay attention to for longer than most people, or you can articulate better than most people. And for me, that was the, the pitch deck was like this, I guess this medium where I found like a niche in every environment that I got into, not just because I was great at it, more because I felt challenged by it, or it was a way for me to get the attention of certain people in a company, like the way I moved up and around and got exposure to all of these different projects was like taking on work that wasn't necessarily mine. Or I'd see my work go into a document and I'm like, this, this is such a mess. It doesn't make sense. Like, is it okay if I like spend a few extra hours working on this and cleaning it up? And in retrospect, all of those little experiences added up to something that became this thing that I'm now working on. So I know this is a really hard thing to do, but sometimes I think the best thing to do is discard all of that stuff, especially if you don't feel like you have years of experience that you can then, you know, I felt like I was like this close. I know I'm not on video, but I'm like, you know, inch away from figuring it out because I had 10 years of experience. I'm like, I know there's a way that I can put this together that is compelling, interesting, useful for a lot of people. But it took so many different little iterations to get to that point. And it's not, you know, I'm not saying it's perfect or it's, it doesn't need to change from here on out but it does feel like it has gotten incrementally better with each little tweak. Yeah, well, talking about audiences and how they've been drawn to you as well, obviously building in public is a huge thing and some people will try and build in public and then stop when things aren't going in the right direction. But I think the thing about you is I was even listening earlier today to your very first podcast episode three years ago or something, and you're like, I'm doing this podcast. Basically, you're saying you're doing the podcast because it makes you feel uncomfortable. Right, right. It's not really your thing, which is funny now because obviously you have a podcast now, which is fantastic. But it's interesting that, yeah, you put yourself out there. And I think anyone that shows vulnerability by putting themselves out there under their own name is taking a risk. But actually, that's one way to build an audience because you draw people into you because they're rooting for you, which I think is so much of your audience that everyone's rooting for you. And I think that's the thing that creators forget about. Well, newer creators forget about now. They want the audience because they want the eyeballs and they want the deals. Whereas some people are just like, let's just build this together in public and see where it goes kind of thing. But obviously money doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I know with most people, they'll say, oh, you know, I have a book that impacted my life or something happened and it completely changed my path. But I want to ask you about a tweet there was a tweet that Naval Ravikant put out, which was how to get rich without getting lucky. What impact did that tweet have on you and your business? It was absolutely fundamental. I just recorded a podcast yesterday on our podcast that we do with a couple other guys. And we answered this question, what's the most impactful book? And I said, the Almanac of Naval, which is not the genesis, like that tweet is not necessarily the genesis for the book, but all of the, the concepts from that mm. tweet storm are in the book. And, um, I think again, this, I think is an elegant way to talk about the last thing we talked about, which is sometimes you can get introduced to ideas that you don't know what to do with at the time. And it's almost like the things that you write off as cliches earlier in your life, you get to a certain level of 
experience or you know time on the planet like relationships whatever it is and you see the truth in these things that you used to laugh off mm. and I'm not saying that the, the the Naval stuff was a cliche by any means. I'm just saying like five years before, if I'd have read that, I'm like, this is nonsense. I have no idea what to do with this. But the concepts that were described in there were so foreign to me because I, I worked in time for money agency business. The only way I thought you could make money is to go and get a job and get paid for how many hours you work there. And then the, the longer you work there, the more money they paid you because you got more responsibility, more people to manage, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the way that the world has worked for the longest time. But these principles are derived from software, media, internet. And it's no surprise, Naval's background is venture capital. And I think if you've studied dozens, hundreds, thousands of businesses to understand what their plan is and how they intend to create value, you get a very broad perspective of the world and how it works in a short amount of time. And I just didn't have that experience. So all of these concepts that were really neatly distilled in how to get rich without getting lucky, essentially just talk about the shift from time and labor to media, code, technology. And he also weaved in there the idea of specific knowledge. Like what is it that you do or you care about more than anyone else in the world. And if you're positioned in a way that people understand what that is and you're on the internet, all of the opportunity flows to you as a result. So I can't pinpoint the exact time when I read it, but it was in that like early 2019-ish where I was getting on Twitter, putting stuff out to the world, getting tighter with the stuff I was putting out. And it was like a bow on top of all of it. And like each, I could probably go through that tweet by tweet and give something I've done, a product I've shipped, an experiment I've tried based on what's in those couple hundred words, but profound. And then the last piece of it, I actually illustrated a lot of those ideas back in the early Twitter days. And I got to contribute to the book. My illustrations are in the Almanac of Naval because I sent a message to Eric, the guy that compiled it and said, Hey, I did these, like, feel free to include them if you like. And that's, again, this self-referential thing that he's encouraging in the ideas that he's published and that neatly tied the whole story together. It's pretty cool. When you were talking there, I was just thinking you were inspired by those tweets, which I know so many have been, but also now you exemplify everything about it. And I remember when I first started following you, you were talking about those tweets and this idea that you earn money while you sleep. It was so fascinating because no one... Well, no one had articulated it the way he did. And I hope loads of people read it. I've got the book and I've been uh, rereading it religiously. I think it's fantastic. A couple more questions. I want to know what drives you outside of money, which I know is Mm. probably not your primary driver. Yeah, not at all. I think definitely curiosity is one. I think what I've learned from Visualized Value is the idea that you can pair the things you're interested in with your vocation and your career is paramount. And I think sometimes you can overlook that or you can get stuck and and stop trusting the things that actually created the momentum in the first place. Like there's a really interesting paradox there where you find something that works and maybe you stop experimenting because you just get stuck there and you just need to continue to be curious and trust the fact that all of the web of decisions you've made up to this point will continue to compound and just keep trying things. And then I think this flywheel of 
making things that have introduced me to incredible people. Like I've met an incredible number of friends for life through this that until last year, I never had met in person and just uh, continuing to basically trust the process that produced the things that introduced me to those people is a huge driving force. And then I think finally just hearing from people that get something out of the material too. Like if you're ever feeling like uninspired or I don't really feel like getting up and writing today or putting anything out today, Celia does an amazing job reminding me of this too. She's like, read this email that someone just sent, go back and look at the comments on this. And that puts it all back in perspective where it's like, yeah, you have to remain empathetic to how different perspectives have influenced you and just continue to like put that back into the world in the same way that like if Naval never published that tweet storm, I wouldn't have figured any of this stuff out. I'd still probably be riding the subway to an agency job in New York, desperately trying to launch my own agency in the evening. So trying to get these ideas out into the world to help people discover what they're great at and build something that is perpetually satisfying, but also generates enough economic energy that you don't have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and go to bed at two o'clock in the morning to work on the things you love. Absolutely. Have you met Naval? I've spoken to him a few times, but never in uh, person. Have you explained to him the impact he had? I assume you have. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you're a great example of people that have taken something that you've learned from someone else and passed it on in your own way to others. We're close to running out of time. I've got a couple more questions. I've heard you talk about the fact that we're all agents of our own outcomes, which I agree with. Slightly connected is what's the hardest lesson you've learned in life? It doesn't have to be related to work, but what would you say was a hard lesson that you learned in life that might be helpful to somebody else? I'm going to equate hardest with best. So the guy I was describing at the beginning who gave me a job, my first job in New York, I was... uh, like this is this tiny room in West Chelsea, five computers, and there's a, like a table in the middle. And uh, I would get these design briefs or be working on a project that we had. And I would like print off my work and there'd be a, like, we'd have a meeting set to go and review something. I print off the stuff that I've been working on, walk over to the table. And there's this, just this one occasion where I w- walked over and I was like, uh, it's not really right or it's not like good enough yet. But, um, and he just like, can I stop you there? I was like, yeah. He goes, why are you showing it to me? If you know it's not good, why are you showing it to me? I was like, that's a fair point. Uh, I don't know. And he's like, just tell me you're not ready. Like come back when it's ready or plan better and bring me something good. And that, that stuck with me for so long where you like, there's this really fine line between experimenting, putting stuff out, like shipping a version of something and internally knowing that it's, you know, you put energy into it you're confident in it it's good and that's like uh i think this this nuance gets lost a lot where people just kind of produce 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 like you know wing it and the idea that you're pushing yourself to the point where whatever you're producing is at the best of your ability at the time if you know that you're under delivering relative to what you know you're capable of then you're doing something wrong so that's like stuck with me massively It's a really important lesson. And I think that shows a good leader. There's lots of agencies or ad agencies that I know of, or I know people working at where sometimes time is so much of the essence that they would flip out and go nuts. I mean, I don't know what agencies are like now, but obviously they're pretty hardcore back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Right. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I have replied to a tweet earlier with this, and I realized, I only realized this recently. My dad used to tell me, play the game. I never really got it when I was growing up, but I mean, I'm choosing to interpret it as like things work a certain way and you have to lean into certain incentives and you have to paint within the lines and play within the rules at a certain point in your career. Like just being disruptive for the sake of being disruptive is obviously detrimental to progress in a lot of ways. And I have a pretty broad interpretation of that very simple statement, but the game also, you can think about that at the macro level, right? Where like you're beginning somewhere and you have to complete you know, level one, then you can get to level two and then you maybe see your level higher up and you can see how things work a little bit better and then you can move up again. But even just the framing of like things are games and you have agency within that and you need to learn the rules and to bend the rules or break the rules, that I think is a really interesting and powerful idea. But again, when you hear it when you're 15 years old, you're like, okay, dad, thanks. <laughs> Means nothing to me, but now it does. Absolutely. And you know, becoming a parent, you suddenly realize that all those things that your parents tried to teach you, well, not oh, all of them, maybe, but yeah. so many think, oh my God, I'm turning into them now. And you'll, and the, the <laughs> yeah. older your kid gets, the more you'll see it, you'll be like, blimey, I'm literally turning into them. But it is interesting that you only learn it. I guess it's that phrase, you only learn it when you're ready to, as in it doesn't yeah. hold any truth to you when you're younger than as you get older. But this is life, the circle of life. You'll be doing the same to your kid, I can assure you. Yeah, when the teacher, what is it? When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah, and then what isn't it there? The student becomes yeah, a teacher, something, yeah. I don't know, yeah. It's definitely a revolving door there, for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right, two more questions. What does the future of visualized value look like? And I wanted to ask that because we haven't really touched on them too much, but I know that you're involved in NFTs. What are you looking to do in the next five years, or do you not plan it out as far as that? It's definitely not five years out, but there mm. are like guiding ideas. I think one massive goal is just the accessibility of everything. And that's one thing I think NFTs are really fascinating for is you can fund a business with like the top 0.1% of your fans and you can make everything else way more accessible to the rest of the world. So like NFTs obviously went through this crazy hype cycle of last year. Do I think the technology is going away? Definitely not. Like is that level of madness going to sustain forever? Also, definitely not. But there is something really fascinating about the idea of being able to give people ownership in a digital network and then change the incentives in the rest of that network so it just spreads as far as possible. So even making a lot of the education products free is my ambition over the long term, but obviously need to find a way to fund the business that makes that possible. Um, and then I guess along those same lines is just trying to figure out a way to, or continue to figure out new ways to help people take advantage of the internet economy, regardless of your skill set. Because I think uh, obviously we're at this early stage here where people are, again, like questioning how they're going to adapt to an internet native world. How do you take your skill set online? How do you better describe what it is you do? excuse the plug, how do you visualize your value to the rest of the world? The broader mission is definitely 
to continue to build resources and put stuff out there that empowers people to do that. So that's really loosely defined, but the world changes so quickly that it feels like kind of a, a little bit foolish to have five-year plans. So try and remain adaptable as well. Absolutely. Final question, which I ask everyone, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you'd offer a younger Jack? Mm, great question. I think the idea of trusting your gut faster would be something I would offer myself. The idea that when you feel like you've come to a conclusion or you feel like you have enough information to make a decision, then you should make it. Like I probably wasted time just kind of hanging around and maybe got two, three, four more jobs than I needed to before I figured out that like you're doing the same thing just in a different building. Mm. So trusting your intuition more is definitely powerful. And the idea that like now that's even more true, that like your ability to lean into what makes you you as wishy-washy as that sounds is becoming more and more important for you to hold your place especially in an internet driven world like the stuff that makes you you your unique perspectives things of that nature are really really powerful and i think what goes along with that advice is like the assumption that everybody that's supposedly ahead of you has more figured out than you is wrong like there's plenty of people that like now are uh, people that were ahead of you in hierarchy earlier in your career that now like asking me what to do. Mm. It's very interesting how that, like that might be teacher student thing that we just talked about. But mm. when you have an idea and you think that you can do something better, you should try and do it versus like letting the assumption that people know more than you do hold you back. Great advice. Jack, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. I appreciate it, Danielle. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Jack Butcher. And thanks so much to Jack for talking to me. There were so many great lessons in this episode. I'll link to Jack's website for his courses and products in the show notes, as well as his social media handles. I will also link to The Almanac of Naval Ravikant by Eric Jorgensen, the book that Jack mentions and which he illustrated. It's a great, concise gathering of so many of Naval's great ideas and beliefs on how to cultivate happiness and generate long-term wealth. As Jack said in the interview, Naval's principles on life and work can have a huge impact. And after reading the book, I think you'll see why. Finally, I wanted to leave you with some words from Naval, which I think Jack embodies, and that is about escaping competition through authenticity. Naval says, when you're competing with people, it's because you're copying them. It's because you're trying to do the same thing. But every human is different. Don't copy. I know we're mimetic creatures and René Girard has a whole mimetic theory, but it's much easier than that. Don't imitate. Don't copy. Just do your own thing. No one can compete with you on being you. It's that simple. And so the more authentic you are, who you are, and what you love to do, the less competition you're going to have. So you can escape competition through authenticity when you realize that no one can compete with you on being you. And normally that would have been useless advice pre-internet. Post-internet, you can turn that into a career.